This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. Thank you, Professor Hain, for uh, talking to me this afternoon. Um, I'm really delighted to be able to talk to you because you've had a, a remarkable career and a remarkable life. And uh, when I taught, when I did my research on you, uh, you've moved from um, Colorado College to Rutgers in New Jersey, to Princeton doing postdoc, to Otago, long period of Otago, then Curtin. How did you get there? Can you can you talk to me about this extraordinary uh, cross continental journey that you've taken in in terms of a, a remarkable uh, scholarly career, but also a remarkable leadership career? Okay, well, in terms of the, the sort of the general movements around the planet that I have um, achieved, I was a postdoc at Princeton um, and sort of looking around at what kinds of things might be available for that next stage in my career. And a job came up at the University of Otago. And, um, and to be honest, I sort of approached that as, as a bit of an academic OE. It was never my intention to move to New Zealand for the bulk of my academic career. I thought I'd go for a few years, like another postdoc, and then go back to the US. Um, but what I, what I discovered when I got to Otago was that it was actually possible um, to be both a parent and a very um, ambitious academic uh, in an environment that was incredibly supportive. So my academic career at Otago was really second to none. And, and I have had the amazing privilege of studying and working in some of the greatest universities in the world. And I would say that, you know, that choice um, to go to Otago was probably one of the luckiest breaks that I've, I've ever had. Um, it was a wonderful community. Um, I, did, I do research with children and um, Dunedin is a very small place and it's a place that really warmly embraces the university and what it has to offer. So I was able to recruit literally thousands of participants for my research. I mean, there's a whole generation of of young adults right now who've all participated in my research over the years, beginning when they were sometimes as young as three months old and, and continuing to participate as adolescents and young adults. So it was a remarkable um, academic journey. And 30 years, yeah. 30 it was 30 years, 30 years at, uh, at, at Otago. Yeah. And then you moved across the desert. I did. I did. So, I mean, obviously, the other thing that kind of happened while I was at Otago is that I made the shift from being a bench academic to being a senior university leader. Um, and that that obviously, that was not a decision that I took lightly or one that I warmly embraced in the beginning. Um, I was a very reluctant leader, um, and I really had to be cajoled and pulled into even becoming the head of my school because I had had, I was in the midst of such an amazing academic career. I was loving my teaching. I had a fantastic group of postgraduate students. We had funding, things were going really well. And when the vice chancellor called me to become the, the head of the psychology department, I, I told him no. And I told him no multiple times over a period of months. Mm -hmm. um, but finally he convinced me that it would be a good thing to do. And, um, and I had to restructure that because my life, and my, my work is my joy in my life. And I, I had had so much joy in my teaching and research career. And I'd watched so many other 
people stepping up to leadership and just really becoming miserable. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a whole series of of people who who took on responsibility and then just resented the time and the energy that it took away from the things that they truly loved. So I wasn't going to do that. And I I am a psychologist by training, so I tried to find a way that I could cognitively restructure this new leadership role so that I could get the same kind of joy out of it. And and to do that, I had to, you know, I thought about what, what is it that I love? I'm in, fiercely ambitious. I'm ambitious for myself, but more importantly, I was ambitious for my students. And so if I could just extend that circle of ambition just a little bit to include the rest of my school, then, then it, it was something I thought I could do. Um, and I really loved it. It was, a, it was fantastic. It was hard, um, but it was also full of joy. And then, you know, one leadership opportunity followed another. And eventually I ended up being the vice chancellor for a decade. Um, and, you know, went through a series of, of really amazing challenges, including earthquakes and massacres and a whole host of really difficult things. And, and then of course that job sort of culminated in the pandemic, um, which, you know, again, was an incredibly challenging time for universities. And, and I was, I was really looking towards retirement. You know, I'd been a vice chancellor for 10 years and I thought, oh, either going back to doing just a little bit of teaching in addition to my research or doing something else looked really good. Um, but COVID woke me up and it reminded me that universities really do need leaders. And so it reinvigorated my interest in leadership and hence I'm here at Curtin <laughs> leading another university uh, in the wake of a pandemic. That's, that's quite a story. Um, and I mean, it's, it's actually a very different story from from other ones that I've heard. Now, what was it that you brought that uh, I uh, that will represent your journey as a leader and a learner? So I brought this. Now I'm not sure. It's it looks like it's backwards on the screen. I don't know if it's it. it. Yep. This is the Wizard of Oz, and um, this um, I thought a lot about what kind of an object represented my journey as a I guess as a scholar and as a teacher and as a leader. And, and I kept coming back to kind of the central tenets of The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, as a child, um, I, I obviously read the book. Um, I watched the movie. I mean, I've probably watched it dozens of times. I've continued to watch it as an adult. Um, I continued to be fascinated by that change from black and white to color um, and how remarkably that, you know, sort of moved you from Kansas to Oz. And um, but. And I obviously that as a child, that's what captured my imagination. But as an adult, um, I think what continues to capture my imagination about the story of the Wizard of Oz um, is that the fundamental narrative is in many ways reflective of what we need to do as educators and as leaders. You know, when, when you think about what, what the characters in the Wizard of Oz were looking for, you know, they were looking for wisdom, they were looking for love and care, and they were looking for courage. And, you know, whether you're six or whether you're 50, um, those, those needs are still fundamental to who you are as a person. And so when I think about, um, you know, what I love, what I continue to love, I'm still teaching in the classroom here at Curtin. They allow me every once in a while to pop in and give a few lectures. And I, I feel quite indulged by that. But um, every time I do that, I am reminded that my job there is not only to impart wisdom, you know, the knowledge that I have had been privileged enough to learn through my own research over the years, um, but it's also to, to shepherd people through those other things that they confront in life. And 
And if you think about university education, it is a bit like a yellow brick road, you know, and it's, it's not a straight path. It's often windy. You often encounter flying monkeys and mean witches and all kinds of things that you have to make your way through. And, and for me, that's that kind of holistic approach to education has been so much a part of who I have been as a teacher. Um, and, and certainly it's, it's a, it's a really important part of who I try to be as a university leader. You know, I, I have a big job, I have to make some big decisions um, and people do want me to be wise, but I think more importantly, they want me to be caring and courageous. And so the Wizard of Oz, you know, embodies all of those characteristics that I think have been the hallmarks of what I've tried to do both as a teacher and as a university leader. And have you, have you always felt this? I mean, when I did my research about you, the student experience and student well-being are absolutely at the core of everything you do, everything you say, and how you act. Yeah. Well, they always have been. And I think, so where did that come from? Um, and it's, in many ways, it's, you know, as we were parented, we also parent. And, and for me, I had, you know, in terms of my educational journey, I had the amazing privilege of studying at a small private liberal arts university uh, in the US. And and that gift was given to me by an anonymous donor. I mean, my parents always wanted me to go to university, but um, you know, we were not a we were not a wealthy family. We weren't even a middle class family. And so, when it was time for me to go to university, there was no way they could have paid the tuition. Um, and on the eve of my high school graduation, I got the really amazing news that my four year education at Colorado College was being paid for by an anonymous donor. And, you know, I, I reflect on that privilege I, I, every day over the last 40 some years that, you know, the fact that I am sitting here on this podcast talking to you is literally due to the kindness of a stranger. So that's how I ended up in the place where I studied. And and I I think the thing about my experience there was, you know, as an undergraduate, I didn't have any idea who the president was or the vice chancellor. I, I didn't know who the dean was. I, I, quite frankly, I didn't care. They didn't impact on my life in any way. Mm -hmm. But what I did know, like so deep in my heart, was that every person who worked at my university, whether they were an academic staff member or a professional staff member, um, they really wanted two things for me. They wanted, they wanted me to have a world-class education and they wanted me to have the time of my life. And so I feel like that huge gift that I was given as an undergraduate of, of this whole circle of highly intelligent adults who just marinated me in kindness and care and wisdom and taught me courage. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I wanted to make sure that every student that I encountered in the future had those same opportunities. So that's where it came from. And, and then as I, you know, as I grew as a, as an educator, um, you know, I just found that sort of appealing to that being vulnerable and appealing to students vulnerability and, and understanding that, you know, one of the biggest things that we do as a university is we stand alongside people as they take those final steps to adulthood. And, you know, you can, you can either do a good job of that or you can shift your responsibility. And, you know, for me, it's been about trying to do a good job. So when you go into your classes and teach, yeah. which I think is fantastic. And I know a couple of other vice chancellors that do that as well. What, what, what's the sense you're getting about the challenges students are facing? And given that you're interested in well-being and the student experience, so 
How does the current student experience differ from your experience? Admittedly, it was in a small liberal arts college and uh, your curtain is a large 58,000 student uh, population, yeah. but there are some, some similarities. Oh yeah, I mean, so what I would say about the curtain students that I've encountered is that I have been remarkably impressed by their openness and inquisitive nature. Um, I teach in the psychology department and I've been allowed to, to give some guest lectures in the faculty of law, which I hope I can, can continue to do. Um, and the, the, the depth of the questioning and the, um, I've just been really impressed with. So clearly the students that I'm encountering are well prepared for their studies, are interested and captivated by the material and are confident enough to raise questions and um, you know, express their ideas in the classroom. So in that context, they're more like American students, um, you know, that kind of more brave um, you know, student participant than I saw in New Zealand, where New Zealand students are equally bright, but they're much more reserved. And, and oftentimes it would take a, a bold American exchange student to start asking questions. And then when the New Zealanders would see that a bolt of lightning didn't hit that student, then they'd raise their hand and ask a question. But clearly Australian students are a little bit different. They are, they're much more like Americans. And, and I've been really impressed by that. My, my biggest um, knowledge about what they're facing outside of the classroom, however, has come primarily through the Guild. Um, and I have a great relationship um, with the Guild president and the past presidents here. I think the biggest challenges that are facing students right now are the cost of living. Um, you know, I, I never thought we would be talking about things like food insecurity in a, in a student population. I mean, to me, that's shameful. 77% um, of the students at Curtin work. Um, and, and I know that that number is substantially higher than I would have seen in, when I was a student. Um, but even 10 years ago, it would have been, you know, it wouldn't have been common for students to do a huge amount of work. You know, they'd work during the summer and they'd earn money. But then when they were studying, they were studying. So they're, they're kind of forced into a, a really invidious position where they, they have to work in order to pay their rent or support their families or put food on their table. And at the same time, they're trying to maintain um, a rigorous academic program. So I, I see that as a massive challenge um, that appears to only be getting worse. So I'm concerned about that. Um, and I guess the other challenge that I reflect a lot of, on a lot is that the sort of omnipresence of social media. And I know that I sound like a, an aged person when I say this, but this generation of young people and, and not so young people um, are just berated <laughs> with negative information. And it can either be directed at them or it's just thrown in their direction. It really may not have anything to do with them, but they're, you know, my, my university experience was a Camelot period of my life. I was marinated in joy. Um, it doesn't mean that it wasn't hard, but people were kind to me. They were supportive of me. I had great friends. Um, and, and I just worry that, that this generation of students is, is being exposed to far too many you know, negative messages, negative you know, influences that, that you know, it has a negative effect on their mental health. And, um, and so it, it's, a, it's a big concern for me for you know, university and non-university students as well. That, that issue of wellbeing slash mental health, I think is a, every vice chancellor that I've spoken to both in Australia, I've spoken to a couple in New Zealand and I've got a couple of friends in the UK and Sweden who are vice chancellors. And it's it's a wicked problem. It's a very wicked problem. And, and how do 
we as academics, because even though I work in a company called Studiosity, my own identity is still as an academic. Yeah. Because of my... That was mine. I'm a vice chancellor. It's still mine too. I'm still an academic. So how? what's our responsibility as leaders in the sectors in which we work to build that resilience, but also to build the critical skills to actually unpick and then deflect some of the some of horror that we read on on social media. Well, again, I mean, I think for me, it is all about um, being vulnerable and telling your own stories. So, oftentimes, some academics believe that their responsibility begins and ends when they enter the classroom. So, my relationship with you is that I have knowledge; I shall impart it to you then at some point I'm gonna ask you a question, you're gonna write it down on an exam and then I'm going to mark it. And then, you know, our relationship is over. Um, and I mean, that is one way, that is a way. Um, but for me, I've always tried to bring myself to my classroom. And, and, and I think what that helps me to do is to normalize some of the chaos of the final steps to adulthood. So, you know, we should not we should not pathologize a normal developmental process right i'm a developmental psychologist and so adolescence has always been a period of unrest and turmoil and you know trying you know leaving your children's shoes behind and trying to you know trying on the cloak of adulthood and and it's fraught with difficulty but a lot of it can is normal and and should be and can be talked through quite easily it doesn't require professional training it just requires caring mm -hmm. and, and being willing to sit down and, and just have a chat, um, you know, seeing a student who's struggling, asking them how it's going, you know, providing just normal adult support and advice. And I think if, if we are going to meet Minister Clare's aspirations for doubling the number of students at our universities over the next, you know, up to 2050, we're going to have to find new ways of looking after each other because we can't have full mental health support for every student who comes to university. I mean, we just, we cannot do that in the same way that we can't have full dental care for every student who comes to university. You know, all students have teeth, you know, should we provide, you know, ad lib dental service? We need to go back to as, as humans, accepting some responsibility for the normal day-to-day -day things that people encounter. And that includes, you know, dealing with our staff as well as dealing with our students. I think in some ways we have, we've pathologized struggle to the point that we have removed resilience and we've removed the inability for people to soothe themselves and to soothe others around them. So I think for me, that's that's the biggest challenge for us is to upskill enough folks in the university so that they provide a safe landing pad for both staff and students who are struggling with the kind of the normal stuff that we all struggle with. Um, so it's, it's about care. It is. Care, care for ourselves and care for others. Exactly. And it's for students and staff because the work that I'm doing in my other life as a consultant, staff are struggling at the moment. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Absolutely no doubt about that. And and it's not because they're unwell. It's because they have, you know, they have stresses and pressures on them that they need to share with someone else who can walk along that journey with them. I mean, it is interesting for I mean, we all know from our own experience that having a chat with a good friend makes a huge difference. And 
someone who cares, someone who's not judging, someone who's not gonna just tell us what to do. All they're gonna do is provide a listening ear, be empath empathetic. You know, we know the value of exercise. We know the value of sleep. We know the value of eating properly. Um, and, and we just need to be able to deploy all of those tools that we have in order to just reduce and calm um, you know, everyone around us and ourselves. But it also requires looking after yourself, put on your own oxygen mask first, you know, get your own house in order, understand what your triggers are, what is your capacity to help. You know, there, we all have to become more psychologically sophisticated um, so that we can help everyone else around us. So you as an educator um, have have that self of focus on self and focus on others and focus on, on the sort of a joining the dots. What are some of the other factors that have shaped you as an educator and, and in fact might have gone back to your experience as a grad student or undergraduate student? Yeah, well, I mean, again, I, I, I have had an amazingly privileged educational journey. Um, I started out, as I told you, as a in a, in a small private liberal arts school. Um, it was just an amazing experience. Um, and then I went to a very large research intensive university to Rutgers to do my PhD. Um, and my PhD supervisor, um, the late Carolyn Roby Collier uh, was an, an amazing influence on my life. Um, she was, when I joined her lab, she was in her mid forties. She was on the cusp of huge fame. She was the not yet famous, but on the way there. And she was extraordinarily driven. And I had um, the amazing opportunity to work alongside her at, at this time in her career. And she, she taught me you know, everything that I needed to know about being both a successful academic, but also much to her chagrin about also being a, a successful senior leader. So she was, a, she was the kind of academic who really didn't hold much stock in university administration. You know, she, she, and she was very open about that. I mean, but th that describes a lot of the academy. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't unusual in that context. Um, but she, you know, again, when I think about my values that I've tried to carry into my own, you know, teaching and supervision, she was extraordinarily courageous. Um, the first paper that we wrote together, the reviews came back and, and essentially the upshot was this should be burned before it contaminates the rest of Western civilization. And I was just destroyed. You know, I was like, oh, my God, I've finally been found out. You know, I'm an idiot. Um, and she's like, oh, well, that's fundamentally incorrect. And, you know, she said, We're, you know, this is wrong. And and that piece of work is now probably my most highly cited piece of work. It's, you know, it's probably got over 400 citations to it so but if I didn't have her there to to give me that courage and that bravery and to learn to stand up for myself I probably would have quit graduate school you know I mean it was just so brutal as a beginning so she taught me a lot about courage but she also taught me a lot about care um you know she was the she was the mother of four children four sons when I was working with her and and um we spent a lot of time in the car together during supervision because she was picking up her son, you know, from school and taking him to gymnastics practice. You know, we wrote a series of papers in a gym um, because Christopher, her son, um, who's now a professor himself, you know, he was he was an elite gymnast and he had to get from home. He couldn't drive yet and had to get to gymnastics. So, you know, she taught me all about what, what care looks like and how you can be both a mother and a very driven academic, you know, that you, you 
there is work-life blur and it's okay. And everybody can get the best of you and you can get the best out of the world if you're just a little bit creative. Um, and she also taught me a lot about wisdom. You know, she was probably one of the smartest people I have ever met in my entire life. And, um, you know, she taught me the value of research and she taught me the value of evidence and she taught me the value of challenging my own ideas. So, yeah, I mean, I, I had all of that in my, you know, in my basket when I moved on into my own academic career. And, you know, I can still hear her voice, you know, all these many years later when I'm struggling with something, I can still hear her voice and it's been really helpful. You know, and then I went to Princeton and my, my postdoctoral supervisor was already famous. You know, he was on the verge of retirement and, and um, the late Byron Campbell, you know, he, he founded a whole field of psychology, developmental psychobiology. And, and I remember my first conversation with him, whereas Carolyn and I were sort of like two cats in a bag, you know, we would argue about things all the time. And, and Byron was not like that at all. He didn't like conflict and, and, um, and he handed me a key to the library and a key to the lab. And he said, go away and come back and tell me when you've discovered something really important. And, and that was exactly the kind of freedom that I needed as a postdoc. You know, I didn't need someone to over my shoulder all the time telling me what to do. Um, and he provided me that, you know, all of the resources of Princeton University. And also he gave me his trust that I would go and, and make something of it. So, you know, I, I just feel like I've been, you know, at each stage along the way, I have kind of landed in the lap of somebody who who really, you know, helped me and shaped, you know, the kinds of things that I've tried to do. But you also lived up to their expectations. Well, <laughs> because I'm a good girl. I always try to live up to people's <laughs> expectations. So what advice would you give to uh, postgraduate students who are embarking on their PhD career? Right. And yeah, I mean, and I had, I get, they invited me this year. I felt really privileged to do this too. At Curtin, we run a, um, a seminar for postgraduate students at, through the library. So it's students across the university and they, they had a workshop over a couple of days and I had the opportunity to speak to them at the beginning. And so I have thought a little bit about, you know, what do you tell brand new PhD students? And, and I think, um, you know, there's just, I also have a daughter who has a PhD. So I've kind of watched this journey both inside my family and out, and I've supervised about 30 PhD students. I think for me, it is about finding joy in your work. Um, you know, doing a PhD is, to be honest, you never do anything like that again. Like there's no piece of work that I can say in my life that consumed, except for possibly one case that I dealt with in the Supreme Court. But aside from that, most of my research, you know, has been quite punctate. You know, here's the question we want to ask. How are we going to answer it? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to collect the data. We're going to analyze the data. We're going to write the paper. Um, and it also involves huge amounts of teamwork. But a PhD is sort of a solitary, lonely, long slog. So you've got to find joy in it. And you've got to find other tribe members who are walking along the same path so that you can share your trials and tribulations. And, and you also have to realize that your PhD is not the most significant piece of work you're ever going to do. All right. It's a means to an end. Yeah. And there's a reason that it's graded on a pass fail basis. You know, you just have to do it. And um, for my own students, I had a really great book um, that I used to give to my PhD students. It's a tiny little book. It's written by a psychologist. It's called How to Write a Lot. And it kind of debunks all these myths about how you have to have the right environment and you have to be, you know, like 
you have to have be in the spirit or the mode to write. Well, that's not true. You know, the great writers of the world, including people like William Shakespeare and others, it was a job, you know, sit down, put the words on the paper, move on. And um, for my own students, we used to have a paragraph at a time. That's all I would read. All I want you to do today is write a paragraph. And at the end of the day, you're going to give it to me. And tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you feedback on that paragraph. And that's how we would get them into the mode of, of writing. Because if you have to think about writing a 200-page document, it's just overwhelming. But you can write a paragraph. Anybody can write a paragraph. So those are some of the like the tricks, I guess, or the you know the the helpful tips that I've always given my own PhD students that I've been able to share here with students at Curtin as well. Is is there something about um, the field of psychology because you're the second woman psychologist PhD that's used the word joy? <laughs> Deborah Terry talked about the joy of discovery. Yeah. You're talking about the joy of learning. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's wonderful, and it's sort of it lifts one's heart and spirit. Well, exactly. and, and I teach, I, I just taught in a global leadership program earlier this week. And I always talk about joy because, you know, we spend too much time at work not to get joy out of it. And, and for me, that was, a, that was a decision that I made very, very early in my career that I would approach my job with joy. And, and it's, it was a decision I made. And I make it every day and I continue to make it and I try to share it with other people because it is a really good tip on how to live your life in happiness and happy people and joyful people are better leaders <laughs> and they're better, you know, they're better friends and they're better parents. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things where joy can go a long way. And so, yeah, it was a conscious decision that I made and I do speak about joy a lot. And sometimes people sort of look at me like I'm a new age freak. Um, but actually, you know, it's it's something I discovered along the way. And it's like many things about leadership. You've got to find your own authentic way. And my authentic way is through joy. And um, other people have other authentic ways. Um, but for me, this is it. Got two more questions to ask. Great. We um, are living in interesting times, as the <laughs> Chinese proverb says. What, what are the challenges that you see facing higher education? And you invoke the name of the minister and his aspirations. Yeah. But what are you seeing in terms of where you're sitting in, in the chancellery at Curtin yeah. as the challenges for higher education? Well, I think for me, the single biggest challenge that we're facing is also the biggest opportunity for the nation. So when I talked to you about my undergraduate experience, there were things about it that were amazing, but it was extremely expensive and it was very elite. All right, most of the people that went to my university looked like me. They were largely white. Um, you know, I was a poor kid. There were a couple of other poor kids. Most of them were the product of really expensive private secondary education. Um, but for better, we have opened the doors to the Australian universities and particularly at Curtin. I mean, this is one of the things that we are really proud of. Um, this is a university that was really built on the shoulders of John Curtin, um, you know, the former prime minister who was a, was a massive social justice warrior. He believed heavily in equity that everybody should have a shot and a chance. And we've really internalized that. I think that's a really good opportunity for the nation the challenge it presents, however, and it's the it's the opportunity that the minister is trying to capture by expanding it across the suite of the Australian universities. The challenge it presents, however, is that um, 
the preparation level of the students in our classrooms varies quite dramatically. Um, the, the ability of students to spend time on their studies versus time on their work varies substantially. Uh, the, the other kinds of life experiences that students bring to the classroom now are fundamentally different. And many of them are arriving at university with serious difficulties, um, with, with trauma. And as universities, we need to find ways of dealing with all of those things so that students can thrive at scale. And that, to me, is the single biggest challenge that we're all facing. Um, and so sometimes it keeps me up at night and I think, how are we ever going to do this? It is the right thing to do, but are, you know, are we setting a rod for our back that we, we just won't be able to achieve? But I actually think we can. Um, and, you know, at Curtin, we've been having a lot of conversations about the use of AI um, and identifying students who are struggling and at risk. And how can we, you know, how can we use those tools to bring people to us that, that need our help the most? Um, and we also have to hire people who have that spirit of, of social justice and who don't just want to teach to the top of the class, um, you know, who, who really do see that the university is not only a place for training the next generation of, you know, doctors and lawyers and accountants, but it's also about nurturing the next generation of citizens and leaders of our nation and the nations where we have campuses. And that mission is large and it's not for everyone. And, and, if, and if you're not on that bus right now, then you probably should find something else to do because that's what, you know, that's the challenge we've been given and it's, it is the right thing to do. And it will make for a stronger Australia and it will help pull people out of poverty. It will change, you know, not only the lives of the students we have right now, but, you know, for generations to come. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, there is, there is a challenge, but I think the opportunity awaits for, you know, a fairer, more equitable Australia. And, and that's really what we're all trying to, to work with the minister to achieve. So the last question is about students. Yep. If there was one thing that you could change for students now mm. to help them thrive, what, yeah. what would it be? I guess for me, it would be that, that sort of community of care. Um, we have, we have, I, I don't know if you've been to our campus here at Curtin. Um, it, it's an it's like an oasis. It's a park. It is beautiful. Um, we have wonderful facilities. We've it's a campus that really invites youth to its center. Um, and the thing that I think upsets me the most is that many of our students don't have enough time just to hang out. You know, just to lie on the grass and ex you know experience the sun, talk to their friends, talk about what they're studying. Um, because they've got so many other challenges in their life. So if there's the one thing that I would do, it, or if I could do, would be to, you know, to wave that magic wand to say, you know, here is the Camelot period of your life, all right? We will look after you, the government will look after you. There will be support for you so that you can do the really important business of getting your house in order so that you can, you know, be part of the, you know, the economy of the future, be an outstanding participant, um, in paying your taxes and being a great partner and being a great parent, all that kind of stuff. For me, that would be the single most important thing. And I know that the government is looking at different ways in which they can provide student support. And I, and I hope they, you know, they take that challenge seriously. Um, because for me, I think that that would make the biggest difference to all of them.
And what a great way to end our conversation. Great. Well, thank it's you for pleasure. 35 minutes of your time. I really do appreciate it. And when I see you at uh, Universities Australia, I'll come up to you and thank you personally. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Take thank care. You. Enjoy your afternoon. Bye. You too. Bye. You have been listening to Studiosity's podcast, Reimagining Higher Education. Candid conversations within higher education, sharing stories of leadership, change, and best practice in teaching and learning. Visit studiosity.com.